Hello and welcome to another episode of the Meaning of Health podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Craig. And my name's Courtney. And today we have worked out that we're sitting in a garden in front of Winthrop Hall. That's right. It took us a while to figure out where we were sitting. Yeah. (laughs) So normally we're in the confines of a a recording studio, but we thought um, due to the nature of the episode, which we'll go into a bit more, uh, that we would try and do this one outside for once. That's right. Yeah. It's nice. So it's very peaceful. It is. Here on a Friday morning. So good. In Perth and yeah, we've had some pretty hot weather but it's not too bad today. Yeah, it's, it's all right now because it's 10 o'clock, you know, we're doing all right in terms of temperature. But yeah. inside soon, I'm sure. Yeah, that's <laughs> it. So we've we've had a, a fairly good um, run of guests on the, the show. Um, and what we thought we'd do is just take a little break for a week or so and let people know a bit more about what the two of us are doing. Yeah. Uh, and our work. Because I don't think um, many people really do. I know that I, when people ask me how my PhD is going and, and what am I doing, I give a very broad sentence and then try and end it there. Um, but I think it'll be good for us to kind of chat about exactly what we're doing and what our yeah. PhD is like and all that kind of stuff. And we can ask each other some of the same questions that we would ask other people about their work. Yeah. Um, and, it, you know, hopefully it might be of interest to people who are either doing a PhD or considering doing a PhD. Um, might give them some insight into the process and some of the challenges and mm-hmm. some of the perks and, you know, the good stuff. That's right. Yeah, so I guess to kick, kick things off, Courtney, do you just want to give a bit of background about your general topic? Sure. All right, I'll go first. Um, okay, so my particular topic is within cardiovascular disease and i'm looking at two conditions called atrial fibrillation and heart failure and essentially what i'm doing with the whole of the west australian population that have one of these conditions i'm looking at why they go to hospital um, why people readmit to hospital after a heart failure atrial fibrillation episode their long-term outcomes in terms of mortality Um, And then I'm also going to look at the specifics in people who tend to go to hospital four or more times within a year because they're kind of a a special group of people that we don't really know what happens to them and and why they're going to hospital so many times. So that's that's my general overview. I've also got to do some like epidemiology stuff. So I've got to do all the trends of hospitalizations and trends of new people getting the diseases over the years and all that kind of stuff as well. So that's my my general topic (laughs) yeah so your work will have implications for like health service planning and provision and that's right yeah mine mine is very much a health health service perspective um so it is purely focused on hospitalizations and death and that's pretty much the only data i've got so i can't really go into any social aspects or or burden or or things Mm -hmm. like that it's really hospital based yep so purely administrative data exactly that's right and are you relying on any population level surveys or anything like that that the department of health might do um no no so a lot of their surveys it's survey data yeah like household surveys yeah and i'm not a fan of survey data (laughs) i know know that uh, like it's definitely a, a staple in research um but we're not using that because it doesn't really fit in the, the scope of my project, but it's also um, the, the only kind of survey data which would be relevant at this point 
is the the census data yes. and that would be it um, yeah. and we use the census data to figure out the population um, who fits in what age group over mm -hmm. certain years uh, and then what I can do with that is calculate standardized rates for the population so I can apply my numbers to the population and then it's comparable um, if people use that population yep. structure okay yeah. interesting and so we've sort of discussed briefly the data sources yes. so what, what are some of the challenges with using that type of data those type of data <laughs> i feel like that's a very focused question <laughs> <laughs> okay so um, the types of data that i'm using is the hospitalization records for all of western australia um, and i'm also using the death data from the abs the australian bureau of statistics okay there's actually two versions of death data so you've got the abs version and then you've got the death registry yeah. um, there's pros and cons for both of them but what? Where yeah. does the uh, National Death Index... The um, National Death Index is a part of the ABS. Okay, so the AIHW administer that, do they? I think so, yeah. yes, okay. I think so. So that's the, that's the data that the ABS uses that's for right. research. That's right, so, okay. so yeah, there's definitely pros and cons to using either one of them. The death registry is information straight from the death certificate, um, so it's more recent, so you get closer so for example the data that i've got is till mid 2016 for causes of death but if i use a death registry then i'd have till the end of 2018 so it depends what you want but i'll be using the the abs uh death data um and essentially what happens is i've got a huge huge data set of millions of records of every hospitalization for someone that has had a cardiovascular disease and whether they've died or not and their reasons for death and that's all been linked together um, so then that's the basis of my data set and then from that I can collect out my two populations that I'm looking at mm -hmm. there's lots of challenges in this that includes that sometimes the merging doesn't quite work properly uh, and that means we'd have to send it back to the, the government and they have to resend it to us. Uh, there's challenges in terms of missing data. Uh, sometimes you've got people that are duplicates but you can't really tell that they're duplicates and it takes forever to kind of get this data set set up into something usable. Yeah. Now, yeah. How, does, how, do, how do people end up being duplicated in a, in a data set? Like that do you think what are some of the common things oh, that happen I, i'm sure there's so many ways so in terms of the linking process you, you know you've got lots of people that have the same name or similar names or things like that and sometimes it can be hard to tell whether someone is a different person or whether they're the same person because right. you know their names might be similar or there might be a spelling mistake so mm -hmm. um for example with my name you can spell courtney multiple different ways and if yeah. i went to hospital and a doctor wrote my name and started it with a k uh, that record might be given to someone else right. um so that, that's one way there's just there's lots of coding errors you can even have duplicates of death dates right which i find very funny it's yeah. like someone's died in 2005 and then they've got a hospitalization record in 2008 and yeah. you're like doesn't quite work that way but okay <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so yeah, there, there's lots of ways that there can be duplicate data, but you really have to kind of go through it and yeah. find those mistakes yourself. And, okay. Yeah. And so you're basically relying on administrative data 
which is not very context sensitive because it doesn't have a lot of background information. It's just That's right. got, you know, a few facts that are all gathered together um, to make inferences about what may or may not be happening for people exactly. you know, with, with the problem that you're investigating. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm assuming there's a lot of co-occurring illnesses that run alongside the actual outcome that you're looking at. Yep, yeah. that's right. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, I guess, for example, with, let's go with heart failure, because heart failure is something that kind of happens after people get a lot of other diseases. Um, it's something that doesn't really happen by itself a lot. Um, so you do need to look at previous records to see whether they've got comorbidities of some sort, like other cardiovascular conditions, type 2 diabetes, all that kind of stuff. And then you can look forward in time um, and determine what outcomes that they've got, whether they've got repeat hospitalizations for heart failure or whether there's anything like anything else that's happening. Um, And you can tell that because they've got uh, these ICD codes and that's the Mm -hmm. international classification of diseases um there's lots of lots of versions of them but we're up to i think we're up to 11 now are we now at 11 i think okay. we're almost at 11 okay. yeah okay. yeah i read something from the world health organization saying yeah. 11's been released um 10 has been out for a while so yes yeah. so we're due for an update <laughs> uh, but we yeah. can use these codes uh they're applied by the administrative data uh, custodians and, and they give us an idea of what diseases they came into yep. hospital with Okay. Yeah. Interesting. And so some of those codes are likely to have information about risk factors like smoking and drinking and that sort of stuff, right? Yes. There, there are some codes for some of the lifestyle factors, yep. including smoking and obesity and there's other ones. Yeah. So you can, yeah. you can cobble together a bit of a picture. Kind of. Even though you're not getting to talk to the people directly. But it's not very good. Okay. So There's some limitations. There are definitely, there are huge limitations when it comes to the actual risk factor side of it. So something like heart failure, they come in, doctor's looking for it, they know it's heart failure. If they think that, like for example, if that person is also overweight or obese, then the doctor might put it down. They will only put it down if they think it's relevant. And then when um, the coders get the information from the doctor's notes, it may or may not be there. So a lot of the lifestyle risk factors are only put on the uh, on the codes or in the administrative data when it's recorded because they think it's relevant. Yep. Um, which then gives incredibly biased data. <laughs> okay. So because it's all up to the the opinions of the people. Um, yeah, so in terms of that though, like some of my stuff, I have used the obesity codes and I've used the smoking codes to kind of adjust for, for cohorts and things like that. So you can definitely use them, but it's something that you need to be cautious of, yep. I guess, yeah. Okay, and I'm, I'm interested to know that your your project is looking to extend our knowledge in a certain area. Yes. And so what do we know currently about the area that you're, you work in and what are you looking to find out that we don't know. Yeah, sure. So what we currently know, uh, let's go with atrial fibrillation first. Um, What we currently know about that condition is that it's increasing in our population. Um, uh, What we found is it's increasing more um, in the younger people, I think, 
uh, and that's likely to do with risk factors and things like that. Um, we also know it's a condition that's incredibly comorbid, so uh, if someone gets AF, they're likely to have other things that influence that. Um, what we don't know is things like up-to-date trends. A lot of our trends are very old um, and it could easily have changed over time due to increases in treatment and also the fact that our population is getting older and all that kind of stuff. We're surviving more. Um, so trends really need to be updated for AF and for some reason these people with atrial fibrillation, even if you adjust for all of their comorbidities, they still go into hospital more. And we have no idea why. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't quite make sense because atrial fibrillation itself is not a condition that will kill you. It's not something that is considered very high burden, like heart failure. Um, it, it's something that people can definitely live with if they take the medications properly or if they go through certain treatments. They should totally be fine and not have to go to hospital, yet they do. (laughs) So part of my research is to try and kind of figure out why they're doing that, why they keep on coming back, what diseases are the ones that are specifically contributing to their hospitalizations um, and things like that. And then for heart failure, it's a very hot topic. In cardiovascular disease at the moment. If I didn't touch heart failure, I think I'd be failing my PhD because it is a very, very hot topic. Um, a- again, trends need to be updated. So recently, some of the stuff that I've found out is that in Western Australia specifically, heart failure trends have been kind of decreasing over time to about 2007. Um, but total hospitalizations have been increasing and that's because of our aging population and we're surviving more. So the older you are, the more likely you're going to get the condition. Um, but recently some of the stuff that I found is that that may not be the case anymore, which is really interesting because we have lots of really good treatments and that's why it's been decreasing, but suddenly that might not be the case anymore. Mm. Um, so I'm going to look into yep. that a bit further. I wonder if there's a level of complacency because uh, the improvements have been made for a long time, whether people think, oh, we've solved that, so I don't need to get monitored anymore. Yeah, well, it feels that way. It feels like um, mm. a lot of their treatments are kind of like, yes, this is the done thing, this is what we do, but our population is changing and it's changing all the time. And I, I think one of the major things is that, uh, for example, in over in Europe, in, in Denmark and places like that, what they found is that heart failure is uh, increasing in the younger population. And again, that's probably to do with risk factors. So, you know, we are becoming bigger and uh, more likely to have type 2 diabetes, which is a major influence for cardiovascular disease. Uh, when we're younger and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Interesting. Now, have you encountered any challenges in the process since you, you know, started the PhD and do you feel like things are going to plan or do you feel like, you know, you've had to make a few adjustments or? Uh, I don't think anything ever goes to plan for me. (laughs) I think a lot of PhD students would feel that way. Do you feel that way? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'll talk about it a bit more in in a little bit, but yeah, I've definitely had to, had to readjust. There's a lot of challenges. Yeah. I think I think 
the aims that I chose to do in my proposal still hit home, which is very surprising for, for a four-year project. Um, I'm still following those aims basically to the T and I'll be able to answer the majority of them by the end. Um, so that, that's a really good thing uh, for me because it doesn't mean that I have a plan that I can follow. Physically answering the aims though has been a struggle because we have to decide on certain things and we have to assume things and, and making those decisions can be really hard. Um, for example, one of the decisions that I've had to make with my cohort uh, is whether I use to, to identify the people with atrial fibrillation or heart failure, whether I use the first diagnosis only or whether I use any diagnosis field. Now, hospitalisation data here in Western Australia has 21 different variables for, for the ICD codes for the, the diagnosis. Um, so that means people could be diagnosed with up to 21 things right. at the same time. That's right. Right, okay. Exactly. And anything other than the first kind of indicates that it might be relevant, but they also might have had it previously. So there's a big difference in the cohort if you use the first diagnosis compared to any diagnosis. Right. Um, and with atrial fibrillation, if you use the first diagnosis, you get a cohort that is much more conservative. They don't actually have as many conditions as uh, a cohort where you use any diagnosis field for AF um, and that's because it's not a, not a big deal. Right. It's say so someone's coming in for AF and that's their only reason they probably don't have much else because okay. if they come in for AF and they've got heart failure as well heart failure is the one that's going to be listed first. Yep. Um, so making decisions like that has been quite difficult um, but yeah, you okay. get there eventually. I guess that's why they pay you the big bucks, right? That's right, the, the <laughs> massive bucks. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and I, I think the, the most fun part of research for me is thinking about how it's going to be used and who is going to benefit from it in future. So where do you feel like your findings are going to make the biggest impact? Who, who's going to be the beneficiaries down the line? Yeah, so I hope to be able to influence some sort of policy and influence guidelines that are regularly made for, for cardiovascular disease. I think that would be really, really cool and interesting. Um, but in reality, I think the place where my work could impact the most is the, the hospital service. And the last part of my PhD is to do an economics-based analysis where I will be looking at different treatments for these conditions and how much they actually cost the hospitals and whether it's worth it. So I, I think the best place would be in terms of the, the hospital providers and things like that. Um, particularly if we can find a way to figure out who's more likely to come into hospital, who's more likely to be readmitted after coming to hospital. Um, if you can stop that altogether, that's a huge cost save for the hospitals. So reporting those descriptives uh, figuring out who goes when and what for and all that kind of stuff helps provide a bigger picture for all of the hospitals in, in Western Australia. Yeah. So it, it's all about saving those costs, yeah. basically. And so they, they can identify people who are at higher risk. That's the, right. The patterns around... Exactly. So yeah, yeah. identifying those patterns um, means that you can identify the patient. 
Yeah. And if you can identify the patient that's more likely to go to hospital, then you can do something about it before okay. they even get there. Like prevention strategies. Exactly, yeah. And yeah, there's okay. lots of prevention strategies for both of these conditions. Um, mm. The issue is their prevention strategies have kind of focused on the one disease. And now we're yep. kind of figuring out that that might not be the best thing to do and yep. that we should focus on the... Uh, the multiple diseases and the individual as a whole rather than just heart failure or yep. just AF. Okay. Yeah. And when do you think this is all going to be done and finished with? Uh, uh, <laughs> well, I'm hoping to uh, technically my three years ends in April next year, 2021. Yep. Um, I'm hoping to have it done by then. I think okay. I should be able to. Uh, I need to start getting things published and actually written for yep. me to get that. Uh, but that's the plan at the moment. And so, and so you're doing your PhD by publication rather than by one thesis? That's right. Yep. So for everyone listening, there's kind of two versions of a PhD that you can do now. You can do it by manuscript, which is what most people think of when they think of a PhD. It's definitely kind of the old school way to do it. Um, still incredibly relevant. Uh, but there's a newer way where you can get a whole bunch of papers published, stick that in all together, write an intro and a discussion, and then hand that in as well. So, okay. yes, it's, it's good. And, the, and the, the advantage to doing that is it kind of gives you a track record, a boost, your academic track record, that's your right. publication history, etc. Exactly. And yeah. the other thing that's uh, a benefit about it is that your stuff's already peer-reviewed. Yep. And so because it's already been published and peer-reviewed, it means that when you go through the process at the end of a PhD, we have to kind of what's the what is it it's so it, the, it does go out for review by two reviewers it I does think. go out for review but yeah. you have to do like a oh the amendments a, yeah but you have to talk to someone now like we have oh, to actually go through yeah that's thesis. it yeah yeah that's right <laughs> we have to do that and yeah. you know if your stuff's already published it's yeah. like yeah you're saying all this but it's published so you know so yeah i think that's an, an american and the european thing where at the end of it you've done all the work it's all been accepted yeah except you have to front yeah. a group of people who get to grill you on your I think we have to do that now your research and your findings yeah I, yeah. I think that has been introduced it as, has, a, yeah. so as I think a requirement it's only very recently yeah. for us but yeah and I think that we have to do it so I, I think it's actually not a bad thing oh it's great yeah. And, yeah and and I believe that if you go through that process the process of finalising your PhD actually is quicker because there's a there's an end date where you, exactly. you have to you defend have to by this it. date so yeah yeah interesting yeah, absolutely yeah was there anything else you wanted to add mm. um i think that's about it I, I think that gives a fairly good summary of what research i'm doing i think the other thing and i think both of us will touch on this is that a phd is not just about research mm -hmm. like halfway through your research becomes the side project <laughs> yeah and even though you're, you're doing all this good stuff and you're learning how to uh, analyze data and and for some people do interviews and all that kind of stuff it's all of the other things in your PhD that kind of make it worthwhile so I've been able to do a lot of teaching in in similar areas um, you've been able to present things so we go to a lot of conferences um, which means we get to travel a lot which is awesome um, and you really get involved in the community which mm -hmm. I think is really good so you're really training to be an academic you are. in many aspects, you know, dissem Absolutely. disseminating your findings in public and yeah. uh, speaking with stakeholders. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. All right. Are you ready for your side of it? <laughs> yeah, I've been uh, been procrastinating and trying to ask you as many <laughs> questions as possible. But yeah. 
now it's your turn. All right, <laughs> let's get into it. So what's the, what's the main overview of your project? So my project is utilising data from two prisoner cohorts, uh, one that was recruited in Queensland between 2008 and 2010, and one that was recruited in Western Australia between 2013 and 2016. And we recruited people within six weeks of them re uh, being released from prison. So we sat down with them, got their consent to participate in the study, <laughs> and then asked them a questionnaire that went for about an hour or so, about a range of social determinants of health questions and social history, um, health history, mental health, drug and alcohol use, a lot of socioeconomic type stuff around employment and ed education and mm -hmm. housing and whatnot. Uh, and then as part of that process, they give us permission to access their administrative health records, which is what you're using yep. for your PhD, and uh, to cover their emergency department use, their hospital use. Uh, yeah, so you're using emergency data. Emergency data. Interesting. Hospital data, uh, ambulance data, and uh, we get some. We get the mental health information system data. We get uh, MODS, which is the monitoring of drugs of dependence data, so for people who are on opioid substitution therapy or maintenance therapy like methadone, mm -hmm. um, they're in that data set. Uh, and that, there's a couple of other data sets. Uh, the IDEA database, which is intellectual disability, um, because that is an issue amongst people who go to prison. Um, and so we combine the survey data, where we've actually got the data from the horse's mouth, so to speak, mm -hmm. with what happens in the five years before and the five years after prison. Um, and in, in addition to that, I've just mentioned a lot of state-based data sets, so from Queensland and WA specifically, but we also get uh, pharmaceutical benefit scheme data and Medicare data as well. So when people go to a GP, we know, we don't know what they've gone for, but we know that they've been for a consultation, and then we also know what drugs they've been dispensed if they've had a prescription. Okay. Yeah. All right. You've so got a lot of data. It's a lot of data. <laughs> Far I wish too I much. had that much data. <laughs> yeah. It's 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 a blessing and a curse yeah. because you need to you need to focus your research questions pretty well because otherwise you could just be analysing data for years and never actually producing any results. So, yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, so so what exactly is the question you're trying to answer? So I have chosen to focus my research on a specifically what happens to people who have used methamphetamine prior to going into prison in the period after they leave and, okay. and is there a difference in health service use and health outcomes for people who have used methamphetamine compared to those who haven't okay. or those who haven't used it recently depending on what the you know what the question is all right and one of the the biggest flags i can see is the ability of honesty so mm -hmm. So you're you talking know. about reporting bias. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So like I know, for example, if I was on drugs, I probably wouldn't tell you. Yep. Um, so how can you, uh, I guess, facilitate that information yeah, out of the people that you're talking to? It's a, it's a fair question and one that gets asked a lot. Yep. Uh, and there's been a, a lot of drug and alcohol research done, not just with prisoners, but in the community where that is, is raised as a as an issue and there have been studies done that show that there might be a social desirability bias mm -hmm. because it's essentially you're asking people about an illegal activity but in our case we're talking to people who've been in prison for in some cases up to sort of seven or eight years um, and they've been through that process and often they've been through prison several times and they're talking to us as independent researchers who 
clarify with them at the start that we're not employees of the prison and we're not going to be disclosing what they tell us to the prison unless it's going to threaten the prison's safety. And so they're at a point in their lives where they don't really have much um, to gain by lying about mm. whether they've used drugs in the past or, or not. That pretty much all their cards are on the table at this point. You know, on the way into prison, they get strip searched, and every time they go for a visit, you know, they get strip searched and all this sort of stuff. So they've kind of lost a lot of their dignity already. Yeah. Uh, and I don't, I don't say that in a disparaging way. I just say that that's just the fact that you know the conditions that they've been living under. Uh, and undoubtedly, there'll be some that maybe do feel embarrassed about their past behaviour and maybe underestimate or don't report it. Um, but previous research suggests that that's really not at an unacceptable level. And so what they're telling us is usually pretty reliable. Mm. And part of that's our job as researchers to make them feel at ease that they're not going to be identified yep. individually. Of and course. That, you know, our, our data are conf confidential. Yeah. Ah, that's really interesting. So you actually went to the prisons themselves and interviewed the people, right? Yes, so I, I went to, I think, four, four or five prisons across Western Australia. And how was that? It yeah. would have been really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it was interesting and we were in a privileged position to of be course. able to get permission to access, you know, people who are in prison. Um, what I will say is that after, I think I did about 420 odd interviews over three years. Oh my God. <laughs> uh, and they ranged anything from sort of 40, 45 minutes up to, in a couple, a couple of cases, two hours yeah. because some people don't, didn't comprehend very well, whether it was down to their language, you know, not being English, their first language, or whether it was down to their intellectual capacity, mm -hmm. you know, maybe to understand being a bit impaired. Um, and what I did find after sort of 100, 150 interviews was you did hear a lot of the same or similar stories. Mm -hmm. And so I guess the, the excitement of being around prisons and prisoners and whatnot kind of wore off of after a while and it became more, more like a job and a process. Um, and I would say that prisons for the most part are fairly boring places where, and fairly uneventful. And, you know, prison officers would probably tell you the same thing. Um, when there is an incident, often it's a serious incident, but I wouldn't say they're happening on a regular basis. Yeah, okay, yeah. so it's not like the TVs. <laughs> it's not, you're not, you're not caught in the middle of a battle between yeah, two leaders of, of two gangs or anything usually. And it, if that is going on, it wasn't something that, yeah. that was obvious. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. I mean, um, it makes sense. Um, yeah. Yeah. And there's obviously security concerns in prisons, so things are fairly structured and um, organised and yeah. you know you can and can't go to certain areas at certain mm -hmm. times and you know it's a very it's a very highly managed mm. um, mm -hmm. environment yeah okay all right um, so you've gone to the prisons you've interviewed the people you've got their data has it been linked to all of the other data sets Yes. Because you've just got that recently, right? I have, and, and this is where our projects probably differ quite a bit in yeah. the, our, our participants. So we had, a, I think, around 1,320-something in Queensland and about almost 1,380 here in Western Australia, and they all individually consented to that. 
Whereas I believe with your data set, you were just getting a waiver of consent. Mine, mine is all anonymous. Yeah. So it's all de-identified um, and basically by going to hospital, you say that your data is accepted for it. So okay. yeah, no, no consent forms for me. Otherwise, yeah. I would be there for a very long time. Yeah. So because, and, and you're, you're dealing with tens of thousands of people in your data set? Or? Yeah. For example, my AF cohort, if I did any diagnosis, that's... 60,000 people right. I'm dealing with. Yep. Yeah, so we're, we're dealing with two, two and a half thousand between the two yeah. places. So it's a, quite a different study. And, you know, mine's a cohort study, whereas yours is, you know, more of an observational population level That's right. type study. So, yeah, yeah, a bit different. But yeah, I can report that we received, the, so the Queensland data has been available for a few years now. Mm-hmm. The WA administrative data, uh, <laughs> a gruelling kind of two and a half year process ended about two weeks ago when... I was man- I managed to get the data. Yeah, so I, I think this is one thing that a lot of PhD students get to go through. I was lucky in that mine was pretty much already available, so I didn't have to go through this process. But what did you find uh, and what did you like and dislike about the ethics um, applications that you had to go through <laughs> for your study? Yes, so <laughs> thankfully in the first phase of the study, I joined the study as a, as a research assistant, ah, you know, so I didn't have to deal with the initial ethics applications, but I have a record of them yeah. and what and the communications, and I can see that they were immense, you know, some <laughs> of the submissions that you have to make justifying the study and addressing concerns. I think there was possibly four or five different ethics boards that the study had to get passed by, you know, Aboriginal ethics is a big one in mm-hmm. prisons, and then obviously the prison ethics board the University Ethics Board and then mm-hmm. the Department of Health. I think they're the main the main stakeholders. And then yeah, ambulance so. is a separate thing. And yep. So, yeah, it's a lot of repetition. It's a lot of paperwork. And it's a lot of boxes that you don't realise you have to tick that often come back and they say, you haven't ticked this box. And yeah, you need to redo to, it. Yeah, so that in itself probably holds things up for a few months. Mm. And then... You know, the, the WA Data Linkage Branch has, you know, there's been reviews published in the last couple of years um, that suggest that things maybe haven't been running as smoothly as they once did. Uh, and I, I know that there's been some changes made there recently. So, um, yeah, I'm confident and hopeful that <laughs> in the future that the process be will be a bit more streamlined. And, you know, I think that's what they're trying to do with... Yeah. Uh, I always get mixed up between the NH and MRC system and the so one's RGMS oh. and one's RGS. RGS is the is the WA one, right? RGS. Yeah, the research government system. I think I think RGMS is the NH and MRC system. I, I think so. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> so anyway, I, I've become somewhat of an expert in RGS. Oh, very good. In the last sort of six to twelve months. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that that part of the job is probably the le- the least enjoyable. Yeah. Uh, but I understand that it's necessary. some things have to be done and that's just how it goes. Yeah. All right. Okay. Back to your project. Um, <laughs> have you, have you had anything published from this? Uh, so I've got a paper that's under review yep. at the moment and, and, and that was actually a systematic review yep. that I did ah, as, okay. as the first chapter of the paper of, of my thesis. Yeah. Um, and then, so that kind of, the reason for that is just to get a, get a, a sense of what evidence is already out there yeah and where the holes or the gaps are in that evidence that i can maybe fill yeah using okay. these data and researching a specific questions yeah, yeah. So, so what do we already know about this topic i'm sure there's a yeah. lot <laughs> so we know that people who go to prison 
basically have, generally have much poorer health than everyone else. Yep. And specifically in areas such as mental illness and drug and alcohol use. Uh, and that's the reasons for that are varied because often people who go to prison come from the lower socioeconomic status groups in society. Mm-hmm. Uh, they often have resource issues, so they might be homeless, uh, yeah. or they might have come from a family that's got, had uh, entrenched poverty over generations, you know. Um, and so there's a lot of reasons why they end up in that situation. And we know that drug use and alcohol use go hand in hand with mental illness, especially when they're done to excess. And uh, so that's the reason I kind of honed in on meth as my, my topic is because the recent um, studies that have been done by the AOHW and, and the Australian Institute of Criminology and people that work in this space show that meth is the, the largest mm. or the highest prevalence um, illicit drug used, often exactly the same as cannabis, like in terms of prevalence, but recently it's actually overtaken cannabis oh, wow. in the most okay. recent reports. So that's why I chose that as a topic um, because I feel like and the other reason is that there's not a lot of um, aside from sort of psychosocial therapy there's not a lot of effective therapy for treating methamphetamine dependence and long-term meth use seems to be really hard to treat so Mm. people's chances of um, ceasing meth use and staying staying off it uh, diminish a lot once they've been using for a long time and so as a population that is at much higher risk of using meth, it's a really good population to look at meth use in and see what happens in terms of their health contacts. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, so in the general communities, yep. what are the issues of long-term meth use? So like, do you know any of like the health issues that come across from it? Yeah, so there's several. Yep. Uh, so, so you can take mental illness as a given. Yep. So things like anxiety and depression and... There's a condition called anhedonia, which is the inability to feel happiness or joy. Oh man, yeah, that's so rough. Because, and a lot of this is to do with the serotonin uh, inhibitors and the serotonin receptors and whatnot, and how they get manipulated by methamphetamine. Um, as far as physical illness goes, so there are a lot of cardiovascular issues with repeated meth use because it is a really strong stimulant, so it makes your heart beat really fast. Um, a lot of dental problems is probably one of the most mm. you know noticeable things about someone who's had a long-term meth use is their teeth are often impacted um, people you know waste away physically they don't eat and so they lose a lot of weight and they often come mm. into prison really emaciated and then they put on weight whilst they're in prison because mm-hmm. they're not using meth and that's something that we'll be looking at in the research as well um, yeah, I'm trying to think. And so your, your risk of traumatic injury is also quite high mm-hmm. when you use meth. And Makes or, sense. Yeah. And then also due to the high toxicity levels in the brain, because meth users will often go on a binge and they're, they're metabolizing the meth, but it's not leaving their system. It's building up. And so they might not be feeling the buzz that they felt off the, the first hit that they took. But it doesn't mean that it's doing any less damage to the brain, it's, you know, because those levels keep increasing and increasing. And so you find that there's a lot of people who end up with brain damage, you know, oh, wow. with acquired brain injuries, not from a physical ac- accident, but because they've fried their brain. Yeah. So, Oof. Yeah. yeah, that's a bit rough. So it's a whole combination of potential problems that people might yeah. have. Okay, yeah. that's really interesting. Um, so in, in your cohort, what are you expecting to find? So we'll obviously expect to find pretty high rates of use, yeah. um, both lifetime use and then also 
we've measured use in the three months just before they come into prison. So we've asked them to think about those three months and tell us. Uh, and it's not just meth, it's across all drugs, but I'll be using the meth data primarily. Uh, and also, we also know that people who use meth tend to use other things at the same time. So cannabis, um, benzodiazepines. Uh, a lot of people use opioids that use meth. You know, they'll use meth to come up and then opioids to get to sleep or, you know, yeah. whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're expecting to find a lot of poly drug use, yep. I, I think. And I, I, I guess I'm hypothesising that there will be really noticeable differences in hospital use or you know health service use patterns between people who report using meth and people who report using meth at really high rates you know like at, you know probably dependent use we'd classify it as compared to people who never use meth or report kind of really occasionally using it and so we really want to see what those types of health service use patterns are mm-hmm. because they provide um potential intervention points for getting people into treatment as early as possible so if people in the ED know what to look out for and these are the telltale signs of someone who may have had a meth problem they can try and counsel that person and find an appropriate service that can help them with that issue and you know start that treatment process okay so the focus yeah. really is again health services yeah for you very much yeah. yeah um okay I don't have a question I have to think about how I was going to phrase it in my head. Um, okay, so the population people in prison, does it matter how long they've been in prison for? Yeah, so that's a variable that we'll use yep. to, to yeah, we'll, yeah, in controlling for okay. any bias that that might introduce. Because like, the first thing that I think of is if someone's been in prison for eight years, technically they've had no meth use. That's now, right. We know that that's not 100% right all the time, um, but that is the general gist of it. So that would have a huge influence on their health service outcomes. It could. Uh, And we do actually ask them about their prison health use, uh, prison drug use. Yeah. So, uh, and that's probably one of the questions that maybe is underreported. Yeah, because that could get them in more trouble. It could. I mean, we we would never disclose what they tell us, but in their minds whether they believe that we wouldn't is another question um but yeah we will use that as a variable in our multivariate analyses to control for that because yeah logically it would follow that if someone's been in prison for eight years they've had a long time to to maybe live without and then they might have better health and they could end up going back into the community and not using health services at all because they're actually pretty good Whereas someone who's in and out of prison every six months or twelve months, you know, yeah. the, their lifestyle might be a bit more chaotic and yeah. So, so that's also really interesting as well because if, for example, you find that someone who's been in prison for a long time doesn't need as much health service use, that's yep. almost a pro for sending them to prison, um, which is not necessarily <laughs> what we want to yeah. portray. Um, so I think there's a lot of um, it could yeah like public could, issues with your. I think so. So perverse kind of outcomes like that sometimes do happen and, and a really pronounced example is in the Aboriginal space mm. because we do lock up Aboriginal people at massive rates, particularly in Western Australia but across Australia. And you, I don't think it's fair or productive to try and make a case that Aboriginal people do better when they get locked up because yeah. I think that's perverse and it's kind of missing the point that is. society is not set up in a way 
to let them thrive and to help them. And so the only place that they get assistance is mm. in, in prison or one of the few places that they might get assistance. Um, but clearly prison is not a good place to send people who are ill and um, need, in need of treatment, mental health assistance, etc. So, and it's expensive and it's not efficient and, you know, obviously it takes away people's liberty and mm-hmm. separates them from their families and those fam- family members get affected as well. So there's a lot of flow-on effects. Um, but what, what it, it can do for some people who possibly need a really severe intervention um, to stop using drugs or to get their mental health under control is it can provide a bit of a circuit breaker. Uh, for really serious cases and I think those are the cases that society read about in the papers and they make an assumption that everyone falls into that category but (laughs) the vast majority of prisoners don't or you know people who go to prison they're usually for lower level offences non-violent offences but in in many cases obviously locking someone up is justified if they've done something horrific and whatnot but what we're looking at is just the people that cycle in and out. Mm, um, mm-hmm. Really high rates of recidivism. I think two-thirds of the people we spoke to wasn't their first sentence. So from that respect, you'd have to say, is prison actually working as a deterrent? And probably not. Well, know? yeah, if you've got lots of recurrences, then yeah, yeah. it's not quite working as well. Yeah. Uh, but you could always pick an isolated case and say, oh, look, there's a success story. That person's <laughs> turned their life around. And it's like, yeah, you could cherry-pick a few cases like that. Yeah. But let's have a look at the whole group, and that's what we're trying to do with this cohort study. Yeah, yeah. okay. Um, are you going to do any qualitative stuff? So, originally, we I think it was in the original research plan, but I believe the resources uh, aren't there anymore. Yeah. Like, the prison research just takes a, a huge amount of money uh, and time, uh, and you're at the behest of you know, prison security and whatnot. And if they need to send you home for the day because of security concerns, then that's what happens. And, you know, the process can just take a bit longer. So, yeah, so at this stage, I don't think there is any any plan to do qualitative work, but qualitative work in that space would be worthwhile. Mm. um, Sounds it. (laughs) Particularly around Indigenous prisoners. Yeah, Yeah, of course. All right. So now, same question you asked me what is the future implications where where do you want this to be seen what (laughs) what is the impact of your research yeah so i guess we're talking about a group of people who you would class as vulnerable people yeah who tend to use acute health services like the ed and the ambulance at very high rates um they you know they have a lot of police contact as well Mm um we know that through the data so Ideally, you'd like to be able to inform services that come into contact with that group of people about what some of their issues are mm-hmm. and where, how best to help them. So locking them up maybe can subdue them in the short term, but in the long term, it's probably going to take something a bit more therapeutic and an understanding of the sorts of issues that they have and what their treatment needs are ongoing. And so if we can inform um, those practitioners you know what sort of issues these people have um, then perhaps you know they can amend their their practice and their policies accordingly and we c- ideally I'd like to see it so you know the Department of Justice they, they manage the prisons in WA obviously the WA police mm-hmm. are the first line that deals with this group when they get arrested or you know charged or whatever investigated 
Um, so yeah, th those two agencies are really important. And then the health services, there's a massive overlap between people who have contact with justice and people who go to the ED and people who end up in ambulances and whatnot. There's a, a really big overlap, you know, and people who are homeless and whatnot. So ideally I, I can see the results benefiting all of those agencies um, and hopefully informing them about the types of problems this group has and how they might be able to take that into account when they do come across them, you know, yeah. um, and perhaps make them more aware of what treatment and help is available so that they can more efficiently get that person in, into the right hands. Yeah. Hmm. So, yeah, ide ideally that's where I would go. Uh, obviously, there'd be drug and alcohol services that would be a target of some of the findings as well because yeah. um, we're trying to, I guess, increase the knowledge about what methamphetamine can do to people mm -hmm. and the types of health problems that it can cause that we might not know about already. So, yeah, any of those areas. It's pretty broad. <laughs> it is pretty broad. Yeah. Um, well, so one other quick question I had is, have you had a look at the emergency data? So I've just... We're basically in the process of cleaning the data at the moment. Okay. What yeah. information are you using from the emergency data? Are you using just dates or reasons for so admission? It'll, it'll be dates and it'll be any diagnostic okay. information that, that's provided. All right. Yeah. So the reason why I'm asking this is we also had the opportunity to use emergency data and we decided against it. Okay. Uh, you might have better luck with Queensland's data, I don't know what theirs is like, um, but what we found recently, and I, I think this is going to be an issue for you as well in terms of all of your administrative data, um, it was like between 2000 and 2006 or something, 50% of the causes of emergency, like the reasons for emergency visit was not recorded. Okay. So it was just dates. So that between we had. when to? I think it was like 2000 to 2006, seven. Okay. Um, yours is more recent than that. It though. is. Yeah. It's about okay. 10 years more recent. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So that, hopefully. That, hopefully. That, fingers crossed. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. But WA has had a bit of an issue with, with recording emergency data. Okay. Um, yeah, look, the, yeah. the data quality are going to vary just from the, the range of emergency departments that it, that it comes from. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Regional and remote and of course metro-based ones. So, yeah. yeah, you have to kind of take that into account when you're... Yeah. And you've got so many data sets as well. It's going to be really interesting to see yeah. exactly what you can pull out of it. It'll be interesting to see how individuals interact with the different services as well, yeah. whether they're going more to a GP whether they're going more to the emergency department or, mm -hmm. you know, getting admitted more to, you know, hospital or whatever. Yeah. yeah. So ultimately yours is quite descriptive as well. It so will there's, be. there's some outcomes, but like I know for mine, there's a yeah. lot of descriptive stuff. I'm yeah. <laughs> um, people are very excited about our That's work. right, they yeah. are. They're very excited. We've got a group of people uh, enjoying the gardens with us. It must um, be an orientation type It must group, be. I think. Yeah. It must be. Um, Anyway, so there, there's lots of joy of using a whole bunch of data like that and it'll be interesting yeah. to see whether they use one thing lots of times That's or whether right. they use everything. Yeah, um, you know, and there's, yeah. there's a scope for, for looking at things like time to event survival type analyses um, to see if a particular incident of it or event of interest happens more quickly for one group compared to another mm -hmm. uh, in that period after release from prison. but. Yeah, largely I think we'll be describing a lot of yeah. things and yeah, seeing what what comes out of it. Yeah, yeah. Well, it should be good. 
Yeah. All right. So, PhD process. What have, what have been your challenges? <laughs> so it has taken me about two and a half years to get the data that I will end up using. Mm-hmm. Um, which is obviously a big chunk out of a three-year PhD. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's trying to squeeze in all of your analysis in six months. Doesn't sound fun. Yeah, so I think I'm possi- my timeline is possibly eight months ahead of yours in terms of when my PhD three years is up and then yep. when the six-month extension is up. So I've got to get my skates on over the next mm-hmm. little while to get, the, get things happening and start getting papers finished and published and whatnot. Um, but... You know, I, I think it's a good challenge, and I think it probably is real world because I think yeah. people working in academia face these same pressures all the time. So it's just one of those things that if you want to do this job, this is gotta do it. These are some of the conditions that you have yeah, to. Some have parts to work are under. easier, and some parts are really hard. Yeah, <laughs> but I, I have really good supervision. Good. Um, yeah. And obviously, they've been through this process with themselves and other people many times, and so. Yeah, I feel like the, I've got a, a supervision team that has got a, a diverse range of skills and experience. Mm-hmm. So there's one of them that I can ask about any aspect of my of my PhD at any time, and I'll get a, a well-informed and kind of mm. sensible answer. So. Yeah, and I think that's it's very necessary um, having the right supervision that suits the way that you work is incredibly yeah. important. Yeah, yeah. and and I, I feel like the PhD is the start of a of a much bigger program of work because these these data are quite new and there are so many of them. Absolutely. And I think that's something that um, I find a lot is people think PhD is kind of an end. Yeah. But it's really not. It's it's you learning how to begin, basically. You're learning Um, how to think a certain way. Yeah, Um, so what I found really interesting is that a PhD in the academic world is considered pre-early career. And yep. then after that is early career. Yep. Um, That's and right. that to me is just, it's crazy. And, yeah. Yeah, and for a lot of national and international grant funding schemes, your track record is assessed from the, the, the moment you've completed your PhD. Yeah. So anything that happens up before then doesn't really get taken into account. It's your track record after that point exactly. in time. Yeah. So... Yeah, it's all. It, it seems like an artificial distinction, but it does. But yeah, you know. sometimes you need those those yeah. rules and those lines. So. And look, and I think thinking is changing because there's a lot more oh, yeah. uh, translation type work, non-traditional. Which is so good. It's so yeah. necessary to have the the translational side of it. Yeah, and that's been considered and weighted a bit more heavily in some of those processes. Yeah, which I think is really important because I, I feel like. A lot of research doesn't make it to the people that need it the most, mm-hmm, that need I the agree. findings. So that's, that's why we're here. Yeah, that's doing right. Doing this thing. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a big that's a big area of passion for me is to make sure that things are communicated yeah. to, to everybody so that people can benefit from yeah, the, everyone, the knowledge. Not just academics, not just yeah. the minor group of people who are interested in it, but yeah. you know, so it is accessible to everyone. Yeah. I think it's really important. That's it. Yeah. So anyone that's listening, you know, they that's interested yeah you know they can they can take Understand on board it and yeah 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 all right cool i think that's it i think we've come to the end <laughs> so yeah that actually was less uncomfortable than i thought it would be yeah it wasn't too bad <laughs> turns out i kind of know what i'm talking about yeah. turns out you kind of know what you're talking about too <laughs> and, and hopefully we'll know even more what we're talking about in about a year or so yeah you know what i reckon in a year 
we should do like a revisit episode yeah. where we can actually talk about some of our findings because yeah. neither of us have technically published anything That's so we right. can't talk about what we found um, as a bit of a teaser I think my stuff's really interesting <laughs> <laughs> yeah well it'll be good to share some uh, publicly available yeah. information you know findings and whatnot in a, in a year or so yeah, yeah it'd be good all right. Well, thanks very much for your time. Thank you for your time. <laughs> and thanks everyone for listening. Uh, as usual, you can reach us at Twitter at Health Means What, and also via email, Meaning of Health at Outlook.com. And we look forward to bringing you the next episode. And keep your com- comments coming. All right. Thank you. Thanks everyone. Bye. The Meaning of Health podcast is produced with the support of the School of Population and Global Health and the Education Enhancement Unit at the University of Western Australia. The podcast is produced by Craig Cumming and Courtney Webber with music by Craig Cumming.